everyone. Welcome back to Antidote Stories in Medicine. I know it has been quite a while since we last spoke, or shall I say I spoke to you and you sat there and listened. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear back from you, um, <laughs> but that's a little bit hard in the podcast setting. I know I said I would be coming back with episodes in September. It didn't happen, and sometimes podcasting is hard. As Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park, sometimes life uh, uh, gets in the way. That's the quote, right? Or something like it. I I do apologize for it being such a delay. The podcast episodes are going to be coming out sporadically in the future as I get guests and I get time to edit uh, and put them out. So I will try to be better about sending things out, but just so you know, it's still live. The podcast is still here, but it's going to be on a, a PRN schedule, you know, per diem, and that'll be that'll be fine. But if you want to be on the show, if you have a great story that you want to tell, please do get in touch with me, antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, social media is also still a thing. So Instagram, Antidotes Podcast, the Facebook page and Facebook group, Antidote Stories in Medicine, um, Twitter. Let's talk about Twitter real quick. So over the summer, I watched the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack. And I know you're all like, I don't care about this at all. I want to get to medical stories. But I had had a couple glasses of wine and I was very paranoid after watching this documentary, because if you haven't seen it, it's about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and how all these apps are use, uh, taking your data and how other people using the apps was allowing Cambridge Analytica to get your data, even though the, your friends on Facebook were using the apps. So Christine, after a couple of glasses of wine, was like, screw this. I'm getting rid of all of my social media and briefly archived the Facebook group and tried to delete my own Twitter, but then deleted the podcast Twitter as well. So then I had to go and redo that, but I couldn't just reactivate it. It was also completely deleted. So Antidotes Pod is the Twitter, but there's nothing up there right now because I deleted it uh, in a in an attempt at personal security, which online security is very important and I do recommend it, <laughs> but maybe with a little bit uh, better planning and forethought, not when you have a podcast and you're trying to promote it. Anyways, that is a PSA for the moment. I want to say thank you so much to everyone that has left reviews on my little hiatus. Every time I received one, it really inspired me to get back in and actually release this episode that I recorded in April and should have been out in June. Thank you so, so much. Specifically, Anna and April on Facebook, they left some amazing podcast reviews. Uh, Katie's Empire left an Instagram comment. There was two wonderful iTunes reviews from Jordan LXR and Patricia Y LCSW. Thank you guys so much. And then I got this amazing Instagram comment from Edible1987. And I'm going to read this comment just because it was so sweet. And my boyfriend keeps mentioning this. So I think you guys should know a little bit about what's going on. So this goes back to the CO poisoning episode where we didn't listen to our detectors and they were going off and there was kind of a gas leak. Go take a listen to it. And then this comment will make a little bit more sense. So Edible1987 wrote, I just listened to this episode. I just want you to know that the fact that smokers have more CO in their blood than than non-smokers convinced me to quit smoking. Being an acute care patient tech, I have seen the end stages of COPD and that didn't convince me. 
but something about having more CO in my blood scared the hell out of me. And I am now 12 hours smoke free and it's a bitch, but I'm plugging on. And I was so amazed. I almost teared up reading that comment and I read it to my boyfriend and he was just like, Christine, I, I stopped someone from smoking. I saved someone's life. Isn't this incredible? And I was like, okay, well, why don't you go into medicine? But he keeps mentioning this. He keeps going, Christine, this podcast that I started, it stopped someone from smoking. That was 12 hours in from this person stopping smoking. Edible 1987, I really hope you've kept it up. If you haven't, that's okay. You can still quit again. You know, get back on the wagon. I'll keep checking in. I'll keep asking. That's just so amazing that a podcast could inspire someone to do anything, uh, much less think about quitting smoking or try to attempt it because that is such a huge feat and it's so good for you. But I have no idea how hard it is having never been a smoker. So uh, I just applaud you. And I know there are so many other listeners out there that are applauding that effort as well. So good job even for quitting for 12 hours, but I really hope it was longer and I hope it's a long-term thing. So I'm going to, I, if you have quit for the whole eight weeks and you haven't touched a cigarette since you made that comment, please reach out. Let me know. I'm sure other listeners want to know and are wishing you well in that. Okay. So again, this episode was recorded in April and I was supposed to release it in June, but Certain things came up and I wasn't able to do that. This is with Dr. Louise Aronson. She is a geriatrician and author, and she just tells these incredible stories about geriatrics and aging and how it can be such a beautiful thing. So I really want to get to it, but please reach out to me on social media. I would love to get more guests going, get everything back rolling. So let's schedule some times and hopefully we'll be able to uh, have more episodes coming out shortly. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Louise was wonderful to talk to. Enjoy the show. All right. So this week we have another wonderful physician author on to talk about their brand new book. This is Dr. Louise Aronson, professor of medicine and geriatrician from UCSF, which is the University of California, San Francisco. And she is here to talk about her brand new book that just came out called Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. Dr. Aronson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is wonderful to speak with you today. It's a pleasure, Christine. Thanks for having me. And absolutely feel free to call me Louise. <laughs> I like to give everyone the titles they are due, especially an introduction. Yes, no, <laughs> I, we're gonna I be... appreciate it, but I'm not one of those who stands on that particular ceremony. <laughs> so. Well, so we can certainly be more chatty from now on, <laughs> but I, I, I hate when especially people find that um, women who are physicians do not get called by that appropriate title in formal situations. I, that drives me crazy. But tell me about your your book. So I started reading this because one of the, the coolest perks about being an accidental podcaster is Sometimes people send me books at a time and I got to read it and it's so great. Um, well, I sort of feel like it is the culmination of my whole life to this point. And I'm 55 <laughs> years old, so there's rather a lot. Um, <laughs> but really my point in writing this was to do a few things. I mean, fundamentally, I think we need to change how we think and feel about aging. Uh, mm -hmm. You tend to hear things like silver tsunami and that this is like 
an absolutely epic disaster, all these people who don't work. Uh, and it's mm. just, we're full of inaccuracies, you know? So f- from the thing of, well, there used to be more kids and now there are more older people who don't work. In the first place, kids don't work, you know? So right. the, the balance remains somewhat the same. And actually older people do work in increasing numbers. The fastest growing segment of our workforce is people in their 70s. And that's because, and that's sort of why I came up with elderhood, because we really have three major life phases now. I mean, it's sort of like Aristotle's three-act play. You have childhood, which lasts, you know, like for all of these, the boundaries are vague, right? You know, so some people are very mature at 17, and there's (laughs) others we know who are approaching 30, and you're really hoping. That they will get on board with adulthood soon. Maybe they will move out. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And there is a blurred line between adulthood and elderhood, but it's also really clear. Like if you were to line up an eight-year-old, a 38-year-old, and a 78-year-old, that, you know, we would all know that they were in very different phases of life. And that's okay. It makes life interesting. So I really want us to be thinking more creatively and proactively about old age, and that's within medicine and then society more generally. Uh, So I basically threw all kinds of things in there. I mean, it's part memoir because I, like most people, was a person who didn't really think much about old age or aging when I was young. Mm -hmm. And it kind of takes my trajectory from not thinking about it at all to thinking pretty negatively to thinking I was doing everything right to realizing that, you know, maybe my youthful approach had its own ageism and onward. Uh, There are tons of patient stories because I've been a geriatrician now for over 20 years. Um, And then there's history, there's science, there's literature, there's quotes from popular culture. I really tried to show how medicine and society cannot exist without one another and how we approach aging in one of those sectors is just inextricably intertwined with how we approach it in the other. Um, And that makes the opportunities and the fun of it pretty great. I was reading parts of it, of course, and I really loved how descriptive the stories were and how you painted these pictures, especially of your grandfather taking you down the hills. Was it San Francisco? San Francisco, oh. yeah. I had the best And he was kind of punking you guys? Yeah, no, he had five <laughs> granddaughters and he had this car with like a, a little sunroof. I mean, they were much smaller then, but he would put us on the steepest hill and he'd take his hands off the steering wheel you know, we didn't understand how cars, you know, I would have been five or something. I didn't know how the car right. worked and that he had his foot on the brakes, etc. And we would just squeal with delight. And this was sort of between taking us out for dinner and buying us huge ice cream cones that our parents might not buy us. So he was fantastic. <laughs> and that's that youthfulness and aging mm-hmm. that you remember as a child that I think we kind of forget as we get older, that you can still be playful when you're, you know, as an an elder. Absolutely. And I think elders know that. It's actually the people in midlife who tend to forget. I mean, most people mm-hmm. who are grandparents say it's, you know, if not the best, one of the top three most fun roles of their lives. Um, but actually, very interestingly, and very few people know this data, but in multiple polls there, are, and this is across the world, like so including the Gallup World Poll, there is a U-shaped curve of happiness in life. So we're happy Mm. in childhood and we're really happy, like happiness rates and life satisfaction rates start going up right about age 60 and they keep on going up. 
And the most unhappy, least satisfied times of life are really in our 30s, 40s, and 50s. So we, we have this illusion that this is the time of, you know, power and wonder and all this sort of stuff. And yes, those people tend to control a lot in society and they tend to be the least happy and satisfied. Um, so we have to, yeah. and, and one of the things I really want to do with this book is get us to tell all the stories of, of elderhood, you know, the good and the bad. We discuss the bad, but all life phases have bad parts, right? Um, but, right but we yeah. tend to be really selective and tell only the bad about elderhood and only the good about adulthood. And the reality, I mean, it, you know, in medicine, we talk a lot about evidence-based medicine. Well, the evidence-based reality of elderhood is that most of it is way better than adulthood. Oh, yeah. Before I started my new job, which listeners of the podcast know all about my, my job change, but my prior job in primary care was half geriatrics and then half regular kind of internal medicine with middle-aged people. And I absolutely loved the geriatric half of my job. One, because I had a fabulous physician that I worked with and he was just probably the wisest guy I've ever uh, had the pleasure of working with. But the patients, they're they just have so many wonderful stories and you get to look at life so differently when you care for people like that. And it's really a privilege to care for people in the later half of their life. I mean, I would joke around all the time with my regular patients that people in their hundreds would come in and I'm like, how was your bridge game this week? You know, they're having a gin and tonic and I'm like, you need to probably lay off that and switch out for some water because most elders don't like to drink a lot of water. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> but they were living full lives. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I'm completely an accidental geriatrician. I initially thought I'd be a pediatrician, and then I really thought I'd be an internist. Maybe I'd work with, you know, it was sort of the height of the AIDS epidemic when I trained, and I thought I might work with AIDS patients. And what happened was just out of the random luck of residency, I had a clinic with lots of older people. Um, mm -hmm. And I found a few things. It's true. I love stories. You know, I did an MFA. So I obviously like writing and stories. I've always loved to read and the way that that captures life. But so I love their stories. But also from a medical perspective, it seemed to me the biggest, most varied and interesting part of medicine, because it really was yeah. all of internal medicine and then all these age specific things. And then because yeah. people are later in their lives, you can't just look at disease. You have to look at, you know, Arthur Kleinman years ago made this, this distinction between disease and illness. And disease is the biological process. And the illness is how it manifests in a particular life. And with older mm -hmm. patients, you have to ask about, like, where are they living? And who are their social supports? And how is the rest right. of their function? You know, if you or I break our leg, they you know, we go in the ED and, you know, maybe they, they put on a brace and they tell us to make an appointment and hand us some crutches, but you're not going to necessarily do that with an 85 year old. And so you get the privilege of knowing much more about them as a human being and then pulling together the science, the individuality, the sociocultural context. Now to some people yeah. that is their idea of hell. They really just want to think about <laughs> the liver or malaria right. But if you are a person who loves people, who's primarily in the health professions because of a love of people and wanting to serve them, I mean, to me, geriatrics is the full package and it has just been a joy. And actually, it's funny, in, I, don't, I don't know so much about nurse practitioners or, 
um, you know, or physical therapists or whatever, but about every 10 years, they do surveys of doctors to see who the happiest doctors are. And we always come out on top. <laughs> I can definitely see that. And I, the, that approach to not just looking at disease, but looking at how health, wellness, and illness impacts the patient, their family, and the community is the fundamental tenant of being a nurse practitioner. And that is like our nursing model. And I think that is why a lot of nurse practitioners are drawn to primary care and, you know, that idea of just a lot of teaching and getting to know the patient and and seeing more about them as a member of the family and the community. And nurse practitioners have very high job satisfaction rates because of it. Uh, again, I can't speak to PAs or anything, but you know, that's something that I know there's a lot of geriatric nurse practitioners and they just love their jobs. Like I loved it as well. Yeah, no, we do joint trainings with our NPs at UCSF. Um, and in fact, we've been doing this thing with the San Francisco police department doing, um, basically monthly trainings with them. And I get to work with a bunch of the, the NP students who are particularly interested, you know, in Jero NP and, you know, we just absolutely have a blast, you know, and this is like a volunteer thing they do when already most of them are working as RNs and studying full time to be NPs. And some of them actually have lives in addition to that. (laughs) how could they it's it's actually shocking um but you know they show up and they're they're so enthusiastic and into it and then you get these sort of you get the police officers some of whom were kind of like i can't believe we have to do this and we get them all laughing and learning and it's just it's such a pleasure i mean i do think it selects for for maybe happiness you know or people who just enjoy what they do it, it definitely gives you a greater perspective on your own life and a greater appreciation of of what you're, you can be going through. And then also it makes you less afraid of aging yourself when you see people aging well and going through life and enjoying it and realizing, oh, this isn't scary. This can be a lot of fun. I can play bridge and have gin when I'm 104. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I also think- It's not all you know, death and despair. No, it's definitely not all death and despair. And at the same time, there are these really hard parts of old age. Um, and yeah. some of that is biology, but I would actually argue that a far greater part of it is our response to that biology. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if you think we make life hard. We sort of like the parts of old age we dread, we essentially have created by isolating people, by not wanting to look at it, by not treating people um, like the full human beings they are. Um, We have expectations that are sort of crazy. And that's part of my argument in elderhood too, that if you expect someone who's in elderhood to behave just like a person in adulthood, they will inevitably fail, right? Um, Yeah. But if you expect them to to behave like someone in elderhood, they will succeed far better than anyone earlier in life. And that is a much more reasonable expectation. And we could avoid a lot of the loneliness and misery and some of the stuff that happens in more advanced old age if we would just really look at it and approach it with the same sort of creativity and industry that we approach all other life stages, right? Um, all stages mm-hmm. have hard parts. Uh, so this sort of, I, I feel of two ways about the notions of successful aging, because if you consider successful aging, doing certain sorts of things, and then we all inevitably, unless we die first, lose those abilities, then it sets us all up to fail, 
Whereas if you think of successful aging really as continuing to adapt to your new realities, to enjoy life and and make changes, then we can all be successful throughout our lives. Right. One of the stories I told in the book um, that I like to repeat happened years ago, probably in the 1990s. I had two women in their late 80s that I was caring for who both um, had, I think, one of them had a stroke and one of them had something else, but they were suddenly both similarly unable to walk. And mm-hmm. one of them said, I'm never going out again, basically. She didn't want to be seen in a wheelchair because she thought people would think she was old and pathetic. I mean, I'll just remind Mm -hmm. you, she was in her late 80s. So the fact that she was old was not something that wasn't already obvious. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, it it always sort of surprises me when people say that. Oh, but they think I'm old. Well, I think they already know. And the the other one, (laughs) um, I had an appointment and I, this is what I was doing house calls at the time. And she called and said, Hey, can we reschedule? And I said, yes, are you okay? And I'm thinking, Oh, is she depressed? Cause I had just seen the one who, who was basically like taking to her apartment and not coming out anymore. And she said, no, no, no. It's just that um, I'm going to the movies. And I realized with this wheelchair thing, I better get there early. Cause I haven't done this before. And I've got to figure out where to put the wheelchair, blah, 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 blah. So we reschedule. I go see her the next week. And I say, how was the movie? And she says, we well, have to go see it, blah, 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 blah. And I said, how to go with the wheelchair? And she said, well, it was the best. Everybody paid so much attention to me. I had the best time, you know, and they basically, <laughs> there were two people in the exact same situation. And one of them's life, if yeah. anything, had gotten better. And the other one had thrown in the towel. And so to me, successful aging yeah. is saying, I wouldn't in a million years ask to be in a wheelchair, but here I am. What am I going to do next? That is the difference. Right just adapting to the situation and that glass half full to use a, such a common, you know, analogy. I think there's so many, when you're talking about like the, what we should be expecting for aging, I remember sitting in NP school and this great, uh, geriatric NP said, make sure you're asking your geriatric patients about STDs and people kind of chuckled. And she goes, no, seriously, those older gentlemen (laughs) are, they're, they're now widowed and they're all single and they can have the pick of the ladies when they're going to the assisted living facilities. And they didn't have STDs when they were dating before. And we think as clinicians that they shouldn't be doing this, that they shouldn't have active sex lives, but they should. And they're not worried about getting pregnant but we need to be making sure that we're treating them. And, and this is an important like health concern. And I think that was just another view of ageism that we would not expect them to have that fullness in their lives. And it was like, a, oh yeah, if I didn't realize that they're like, they're, of course they're adults, of course they're going to be having relationships after, you know, they lost their spouse. And it, it's all these things that we kind of don't reframe once someone gets past the age of 70, I think. Right. I mean, we, we sort of assume that they're fundamentally different animals. And I guess what I can say, right. having cared for people generally between the ages of 70 and 110 for a long time now, is that they're, we're all exactly the same. <laughs> you know, it's actually like if, if you go to nursing homes, 
the clickishness and the the talking about people and the, oh, the group God. activities. Who sat at whose table? Yeah, I mean, it's no <laughs> difference than, than grade school or college. And the dating is yeah. just like I can remember the first time one of my parents' friends got divorced and went back on the dating scene. And you know, it's like it, and she was in her forties. It's just the same throughout life. People absolutely. Mm-hmm. So so the interesting thing about sex in late life, although I think this might be true earlier, only people are um, loath to admit it, is that. Um, <laughs> Most people are still totally into it. Um, and some people sort of feel like, phew, I don't have to do that anymore. You know? Um, yeah. But they're actually the minority. And it's more often our notions of what's right and what's wrong. Um, so another story I love is uh, I had a uh, two sisters who were in their early 90s that I took care of, um, oh, maybe 10 years ago now. And they would often come for their appointments together. And the one sister's uh, husband had died and the others had not. And the ones, the one who hadn't died would always bring, bring the two sisters. And he was adorable. He always wore a vest and a hat and the whole thing. And he would sit in the waiting area. I don't know who his doctor was. Anyway, so one week, (laughs) the first sister, the slightly younger one came in and she, I said, how are you? And she says, you know, let's not talk about me. We need to discuss my sister. I was like, oh my goodness, what's happened? So she says, well, she's having sex. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, she says, well, she's having sex. And I said, right. Who with? You know, I'm thinking maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. Because she was the one with, you know, the sister was the one with the husband. And so she says, well, with her husband. And I said, okay. Yeah. You know, she's like, well, you need to tell her it's not all right. It's just, I mean, we're all in our nineties. This is, you know, she was just completely outraged. So on and on and on. So finally I figured like, we're never going to get to any of her problems if I don't just say, okay, I'll speak to your sister. Okay. Phew. So then, you know, we deal with the high blood pressure, whatever else. Okay. Second sister comes in, usually a very lively person, not making eye contact with me, you know, sort of shoulder oh, gosh. sits in the chair. So I say, how are you? I don't get, you know, I get a little tiny response. So I say, so your sister talked to me and she's nodding. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, so she says you're having sex. Nod. With your husband? Nod. So I say, are you enjoying it? And she sort of looks up at me. And then she looks back down. Nod. Is he enjoying it? She looks up at me again. Nod. Now she's kind of looking at me. And I'm like, is anybody getting hurt? shakes her head. I'm like, so you're both enjoying having sex and you've been married for 70 years. I just don't see there. There's a problem. Huge smile up, go the shoulders and onward with the visit. Um, her sister was actually really mad at me, but you know, it was ridiculous. She was being cowed into feeling badly for something that was normal. Yeah. Um, and a and great source of exercise. Seven decades yeah. with no problem. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many there's stories so much like about our expectations right but there's so many stories like that where people come in and they have these complaints and you're like this is not really a problem and like that's okay right. you're allowed to do that you're allowed to have fun you're allowed to be older and have fun and that's fine and then you totally get the patients that are in their hundreds in their 90s and they just don't give a damn and they're mm-hmm. like look I've made it this far. I am not changing the steak and the three cigarettes a day and bourbon has gotten me, you know, to 102. I'm not changing well, something. And you go, oh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, 
really, they, they're probably right. In the first place, we don't yeah. tend to study older people, right? So until right. just this past February, the NIH did not require people to study to include older adults, even when researchers were studying diseases um, that primarily occurred in older adults. So although there had been inclusion requirements for children, women, and people of color, for a couple of decades, it was not until 2019 that the NIH rules made sure people would include older adults. So we actually don't know if smoking matters if you're in your 90s. We don't know if statins help you if you're in your late 80s. We don't know. We don't know any of that. And frankly, if you've made it to 90 or 100 and you've been smoking for 80 years, I think you've shown a sort of genetic resilience right. uh, that, that, you know, like, go for it. Yeah. And also, I, I feel strongly that as your life horizon is narrower, you know, you should get pleasure wherever. You know, I once had a son come and be outraged that his mother, his mother who was 103, was eating ice cream. And she had very mild diabetes. And I was just like, it doesn't yeah. matter. It makes her happy. If I ever live to yeah. 103, which it's I seriously like, doubt who I cares will, at this point? Um, like, it's been 103 years. Every day, if I want yeah. to. Yeah. If you know, I go not? out with ice cream like, at 103. 103, where do we think that's going? She should eat ice cream, for goodness sake. Please let ice cream be the thing that takes me at 103. You bring up a great point, though, about, you know, the research and kind of a scientific, um, what is the word I want to use, uh, just kind of a bias against, you know, old age. You said in your book that geri um, geriatrics is not even listed as a specialty. And of course, it, it is very much a specialty. And I was reading that and I was like, oh my gosh, it reminded me of this prior job that I was in where it was two doctors in private practice and one was a geriatrician and one was an internal medicine doc. And the internal medicine doc was the reason I changed the job. And he kind of very cavalierly said one day, oh, geriatrics, it's so easy. They're just old. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Like that, like, they have all these complaints. There's so many conditions. There's meds that are interacting with everything. There's falls. There's, it's way harder than your patients that just want like Xanax and Adderall and like you treat their cold sometimes. Like that's way more complex. And it, it's really true. I think that in the medical kind of community overall, geriatrics is really pushed to the side and it's really unfortunate for patients and clinicians. Right. Well, I think there are many parts to that. Part of it is yes, that, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, we all, we clinicians are human beings and we live in a very ageist society. Yeah. So naturally as professionals, our personal ageism and norms are going to come out. Right. Yeah. Um, I also think that sometimes um, clinicians who deal with adults feel strangely competitive. Like on the one hand, they'll say these patients are so hard and complex, or as the internist you refer to say, just kind of write them off. And on the other hand, they, they don't seem to want to acknowledge that there's a whole specialty that is happy to help them out. And, you know, to either teach them how to cope with this degree of complexity, um, or to see those patients, if they're feeling like it's not really in their wheelhouse, you know, any of those things yeah. are fine. Where I feel often disappointed in colleagues is when they either pretend like age doesn't matter and often do harm as a result, mm -hmm. or look only at age as opposed to at the function or goals of 
the older person, because if you have a really fit 80 year old, their life expectancy is such that all kinds of preventive and and treatment things make good sense. And if you have a really frail one, then that is not true. Uh, Variability increases in old age. And then perhaps most um, disappointing of all is the people who say, well, I take care of old people all the time. You can do something all the time. It doesn't make you a specialist. You know, I listen to people's hearts every day I'm in clinic. That does not make me a cardiologist, right? (laughs) I have many patients with cancer. That doesn't make me an oncologist. Um, Right. So, you know, and, and, and we know from pediatrics that kids who get treated by pediatric specialists in pediatric ERs, in pediatric hospitals have better outcomes than kids who get treated um, by generalists in generalist hospitals. Um, Everything we know from the geriatric literature suggests the same is true. Uh, It sort of stands to common sense, and there's good evidence to back it up. And I feel like I had one more point about um, (laughs) aging and, and something like that and how people deal with it, but I can't think what it is. So... So you were mentioning, of course, it is important to adjust medication for the condition, you know, as someone is aging, you know, based on their expectancy and how they're feeling. And you had mentioned specifically Frank in the book um, and how he was kind of the example of not aging. Well, he was the example of what people fear in aging, kind of. Um, the gentleman who loses his wife and is then in assisted living and, and you tried to make him comfortable by adjusting, reducing his medication burden and helping with depression as a result of kind of this kind of bleak outlook on, on where he was and also trying to, you know, get in exercise and all of these things were, that were still kind of this old people mill of an assisted living what do you suggest for clinicians that are kind of facing patients like that? Yeah, so I'm actually I'm working on a, a sort of frank essay right now about about that particular patient and the issues he brings up, um, really for all of us and and from for healthcare uh, and society as well. So Frank was uh, nearly 90 when I met him, and he had many, many, many medical problems. And then his wife died, and his problems were getting worse. And, you know, I was treating all of his diseases according to what we know best. Uh, okay. But at some point in advanced old age, right, when you're having trouble seeing and you're having trouble hearing and you're having trouble with continence and you can't really walk and you can't do basic things for yourself and your yeah. diseases are managed, the management of disease becomes not so relevant. And this isn't, you know, and, and for some people, they really feel like my life has run its course. Yeah. I do not want to be alive anymore, right? I've had a good life. Frank had a great life. Yeah. And he basically had enough, and yet there he was still alive. So this yeah. is actually a reality that is largely constructed by the medical advances, particularly in the second half of the 20th century and in the current century. So we have created this situation that we all dread and don't want to be in. Now, now there are some people who want to be alive no matter what. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes this has to do with religion. Sometimes it just has to do with who they are as people. In my experience, they are a minority once you get to the true extreme of old age, where there's no amount of care or love or whatever else that is really going to correct 
the things that are depriving people of their agency, their meaning, their purpose, their hope. I don't know that that's depression. That may be an accurate assessment of a really, really extreme life phase. Mm -hmm. And to say that a person who wants to be dead, who's in their 90s and all organ systems are not really functioning, and and we have no hope to offer them of any of them getting better, to say that that person wanting to be dead is equivalent to a 50-year-old who just lost his job wanting to be dead or a 24-year-old who's just had a breakup wanting to be dead, um, I think is wrong, right? Right. They are at a very different phase of life. And even within elderhood, it's really different to be that older person and to be a 77-year-old whose spouse just died who's feeling depressed. Those are really different deaths to me. And I think we need to explicitly and carefully think about if we have engineered basically this advanced old age that most people don't want to be alive in, what are we going to do to help people once they reach that situation? And I don't know what the right answer is. It obviously puts you on a bit of an ethical slippery slope. Uh, On the other hand, I would argue we are already on an ethical slippery slope, having engineered this future and then abandoning people into the misery of it. So at the very least, we need to start having these conversations. Um, And I think that will make the worst of old age so much less scary and onerous for all of us. So people see it as like this horrible, hard thing. And yes, it's hard, but hard isn't necessarily horrible. And I think we could really make a difference here if we can just have these sincere conversations and and make the end as good as everything that leads up to it. I, I really believe we can do that, but we have to start by talking about it. It's definitely a different, a very difficult conversation, but having worked in geriatrics and also done long-term care as part of that practice, we would round in the assisted livings and nursing homes. You see those patients that are medically complex, but stable with their CHF and diabetes and everything else, or, you know, those cancers that are just those lingerers, you know, they're not going to take them, but they're just hanging on. And you're like, what do we do now? If we keep these meds, or even if we don't, they're going to be around for another couple of years. But this person is just, they've had enough. They've run their course. And it's like having too much ice cream. After a little while, it's just, you know, you don't want any more. And there's no point if no one else is around enjoying it with you. And so your heart kind of just breaks as you see these people you know, usually in an assisted living, surrounded by the memories of their life that once was that made them happy. And I think almost seeing all of that makes it a little bit worse because they're just kind of just reflecting on everything that they used to have. And again, I don't know the answer, but talking about it certainly is is at least doing something. That is is not always the case. I mean, that's a not a common thing. I I wouldn't I'm not sure how to say how common it is. I I shouldn't speculate on that, but it's something to be concerned about as far as the conversations of aging. Definitely. You know, and I think we, we put people, segregate them into these warehouses um, so that we don't have to look at what we fear most, what we find tragic. And they too find it tragic. So um, yeah. Judith, Judy Graham, who writes um, great things on aging, uh, mostly for Kaiser Health News um, these days, had a piece a couple weeks ago, definitely in April, about uh, suicide rates in long-term care facilities. 
And mm. more and more people are just saying, I don't want to live this way and then killing themselves. Um, one of the problems with that solution is that, you know, suicide does all kinds of collateral damage to families, right? Who yeah. feel like, oh my God, we didn't make his or her life worth living. Um, I also think a person who's really at their end of the light, end of their life shouldn't have to resort to that, that we should be able to offer them other options. Yeah. And you probably have to do it sooner than you might, because I feel like the people who really would rather not be here any longer, no longer have the ability to kill themselves either. Yes. So there's all kinds of problems. And those problems all stem from the fact that we don't address, we don't acknowledge that the extremes of elderhood are absolutely different and unique life situations that need different and unique solutions. Yeah. To change topics to something that is a little bit more hopeful about elderhood. <laughs> yes. Oh, and, and that's the extreme and the minority, right? For, yes. So ju just to be clear, I think you're just right. Before that yes. are decades, which are, as we said earlier, the happiest ones of most people's lives. Yes. I, it's a very important topic that I think we see as clinicians and we should be discussing because I think everyone is very afraid of that. But mm -hmm. also it's really important to talk about how wonderful it can be for people. And I always had patients that were coming and saying, oh, I went to my dancing class or something. They were, they're always doing activities. And that was something I was always encouraging people to do because stride length was a big indicator of fall risk. There were some studies with that. But what other things do you encourage your patients to do that are not pharmacological to increase their longevity, increase their strength, their happiness, to really get the most out of those years? Yeah. Well, I think it's actually sort of ironic that, you know, we, we badmouth elderhood, but um, in, in adulthood, we're always saying, oh my God, you know, I don't have enough time to work out as much as I want. I don't have enough time to go see that movie, you know, to stream that movie. I yeah. don't have enough time to read that book. I don't have enough time to see my friends. Oh, I'd like to go see this country. I'd like to go do that. Yeah. Oh, I would volunteer. Don't, isn't that an organization call? I would love to do that. And yeah. in elderhood, that's what your days are comprised of. Like all those things that we're all saying we never have time to do. Yeah. We so want to do it. And we spend all our adulthood complaining like, I wish, I wish, I wish. And then elderhood, you get to do those things. Yeah. You know, what a person likes is so personal. Yeah. Um, but th there is no question that the single best medicine um, sort of for both mental and physical health, um, for heart disease management and prevention, for cancer prevention, for diabetes prevention and management, possibly for dementia, for basically, you know, everything you can think of is exercise and activity. Mm -hmm. And so for some people, exercise is just like this, oh no, 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 no. But I, what I like to say is exercise is any kind of physical activity that really gets you moving. So if what you like to do is walk or what you like to do is look at buildings, walk and go look at those buildings, right? If you like yeah. to dance, dance is a fantastic form of exercise. Yeah. It's also social. You get music. You know, if it, it, there's so many different ways people can stay active and fit. Um, and that's probably the single most important thing. Um, if you can do it in a social context, I'd say that's a twofer. Yeah. 
eating well, we tend to think of eating well as one of those things also um, that you do preventatively. It's increasingly clear with all this stuff on sugar addiction. Um, and, and let me just be clear to the audience that I say this as a um, sugar addict myself who suffers from <laughs> recidivism. We have, we have a visiting 19-year-old um, currently, and there's a lot of ice cream. And every day I pledge to be a better person in midlife and every day I fail. <laughs> so I totally understand how hard this is. And yet I think we all know that when you um, eat less sugar, you know, and lots of the good, colorful, fresh things um, that the world has to offer, unless you happen to live in a food desert, yeah, then you feel better. You have more energy, you sleep better, all those things. And that's no less true in elderhood. So I really think that the three key things, um, or maybe the four key things are, you know, activity, social engagement. It's clear that loneliness and social isolation kill, um, they're like yeah. 15 cigarettes a day. Yeah. Um, so, so physical activity, social engagement, nourishing your body, you know, good food, good sleep. And then, and then really like thinking what gives your life meaning and purpose, right? Having something to get up for every day makes a huge difference in the quality of a person's life at all ages. So find something you love and go for it. It can be working on that old car that's been without tires in your front yard for 40 years. You know, it can be volunteering with the cute kids that keep walking by your apartment building. It can be so many things. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters that it makes you happy and that it gives you a great reason to get up in the morning. Yeah. That's a very optimistic and I think more realistic idea or not even idea, but description of what people really are doing as they're aging. I would always ask people, oh, what have you been up to? And you get these wonderful stories of just what they're doing, especially when you get the couples. My favorite part <laughs> is talking to the couples that have been married forever. For and so you, long. <laughs> so twice so as long, long as you've been alive or something. You know? Yes. Yeah. And getting to give them like good medical news. I can think of like one in particular. Um, and, like it just makes me tear up thinking about it and just to asking them about how long they've been married and what they like to do together. And like, that is their activity, just being them being together. And you go, I don't know how you do it, <laughs> but it's, it's so, it's so wonderful to see those, that socialization and the individual, you know, stories that come from that. Right. And, and also you can just, you know, if you think of who's leading this country right now, the leaders in Congress, a bunch of the leading presidential candidates, a bunch of the people on the Supreme Court, a bunch of the people who lead the biggest organizations, whether it's Hollywood or, um, or maybe a little less in tech, obviously, you know, but big uh, biopharma companies, big hospitals, most of those people are in their 60s, 70s, and sometimes 80s. So this notion that everybody retires um, and that that's what elderhood is, is actually increasingly false. It's that thing of being active engaged and doing something purposeful. It turns out work is what does that for most of us most of the time. Yeah. Um, and so for those of us who are fortunate to have interesting careers, most people really don't want to retire or they yeah. retire and then they unretire um, and they do something admittedly, you know, usually not the 60 hours a week that most of us work in adulthood, <laughs> um, but sometimes that much. 
and, and take up second careers doing all kinds of things. And it's also true, though, that for people on the lower half of the income ladder, uh, they often need jobs to have more money because people are retiring earlier but living longer and you can run out of money. So to find a job that's fun, like I travel a lot and I get a lot of, you know, Uber drivers, shuttle drivers and people like that who are in their 70s and 80s and loving it because they just spend the day chatting with people. They make extra money. Um, they go around town. It's terrific. So there's so many ways to be old. The limit is really a person's imagination. And then, of course, as at all ages, their finances. Yes. Yeah. And having that part-time job that is a fun job can help with the finances, but also keep you socially engaged and active too. I mean, look at RBG. She's a hero for many people. And she was in that video where she's lifting weights and doing push-ups and everything. Yeah, and it was I just, love that movie. <laughs> it was just an amazing example of <laughs> badass aging with her yeah. kyphotic spine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at her and you think like, oh, you know, she couldn't do any of those things, but she does. So we're just wrong in our assumptions more often than not. And she's beat pancreatic cancer like twice, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's also some people who are exceptional, you know, like don't try exceptional this at in, home. Exceptional <laughs> in every way. In every yes. possible way. Yeah, no, she's sort yeah. of the fourth dimension, but I think there's also <laughs> a lot that those of us who live in the third dimension can do. Yeah. Or at least attempt to approach that level exactly. of inhumanity. <laughs> superhero state. Yeah. So what else about your book would you like to touch on before we wrap up? Um, I guess the last thing is, uh, as I said earlier, I trained as a fiction writer. So uh, the, the... You can tell in the book. It's, okay, good. I was going to say, so So the Nobel uh, the Nobel Literature Prize winner, Isaac Bashevis Singer, um, was once asked, what is the point of literature? And he said, um, number one is entertainment. And number two is education. Mm. So uh, my goal was really to reach that level that it should be an enjoyable read. And all the feedback so far is that it is, although I suppose um, if people found it wasn't, they might not tell me. Uh, but really the point <laughs> was to entertain first and to educate secondly. And then, and then, of course, the big goal is to change how we think and feel about aging so we can all really look forward to it and really enjoy it. Well, I think for listeners of this podcast where it is stories and medicine, you know, antidote stories and medicine, you tell a bunch of stories and you know, everyone here loves stories. So it, the stories were beautifully written, very descriptive. And I certainly felt like I was in the car with your grandfather <laughs> teasing us down the hill. Uh, and and then hearing Frank's story as well it was just absolutely devastating. And I was almost tearing up as I was reading that amongst all the other ones too. So it was very well written and I'm sure everyone else will love it when they read it. Well, let everyone know where they will be able to find you and your book and where your website is. Okay. So you can find me. Uh, my website is www.louisearonson.com. And there you can find uh, how to order the book. You can find um, where to find me on Twitter and Instagram. You can find all my appearances on television and live, hopefully in a city near you. You can request that I come if I'm not already coming. And you can buy the book really anywhere um, from Amazon to your local bookseller. Local booksellers are great and Amazon is super convenient. And that book is Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine and Reimagining Life. 
by Dr. Louise Aronson. Thank you so much again for taking time out to speak with me about this book. This was so much fun. Thank you, Christine. I had a great time too. It was terrific to speak to you. (laughs) 